Initially, going to a show, putting your stuff up on the wall, the best you got within you, right? The best stuff you could come up with is up there on the wall. It's synonymous with you. And to watch people just kind of shuffle by, <laughs> just hundreds <laughs> and hundreds and hundreds of people just shuffle by. <laughs> it's, it's, and your soul uh, is hanging out for all to see. <laughs> yes. An honor. And just the wilting power of that over time. And then you multiply that by like a three, four day show. Yeah. It's tough. And it's not for the faint of heart. Helping people build ambitious and satisfying careers, businesses, and lives. This is the Influence Ecology Podcast. Now, here is your host, John Patterson. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in the world. I'm your host, John Patterson, the co-founder and CEO of Influence Ecology, the leading business education in transactional competence, an ability that gives people a superior advantage in meeting their aims. Broadcasting from Ojai, California, this podcast features case studies, stories, and lessons from business owners, executives, and entrepreneurs who found real solutions, real results, and real satisfaction, not only with work, career, and money, but in every area of life. You'll hear how these ambitious professionals found that those who transact powerfully thrive. Today is a featured interview with Sean Gillespie, founder of Art for Life. He's a successful artist who creates award-winning abstract sculptures from his one-man studio in Denver, Colorado. His work can be found in exclusive galleries, national juried shows, and in corporate installations across the United States. Influence Ecology's members include business and creative professionals from all over the world. We educate not only executives and entrepreneurs, but also artists, designers, musicians, writers, and filmmakers. And today, perhaps we'll tackle the question, how do you make a living as an artist? It might be common to assume that artists make terrible business people. Yet, the same can be true for many doctors and lawyers I know. And in all cases, what is required is transactional competence, knowing how to construct a recurrent business offer that meets your unique aims for work, career, and money. You'll hear Sean's journey and how a little study goes a long way. In today's Guru Talk, we'll listen in on a membership webinar to hear Kirkland Tibbles explain the nature of indifference and how we might navigate an indifferent marketplace. Sean, welcome to the show. Thanks, thanks for having me. Tell us about your work and you. Well, I create abstract contemporary pieces in wood and metal. Uh, out of my home studio in Denver, Colorado. I started business in 2007. And as you said, I have corporate and private installations all over the U.S. and Canada. And I'm really appreciative and proud to be making my living doing that. It's a very competitive and challenging field. Absolutely is. My first company right after college was in in woodworking and, and in the arts. I had a furniture design company for four or five years. And yes, it is a challenging industry. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, I think what I'd love to do is, I, w- I want to start with that question, how do you make a living as an artist? I don't know about your childhood, but my childhood, and, and in many cases, you would hear people say, you know, you can't make a living as an artist. Don't do that. Be in business. What kind of experience did you have growing up, and what were you told, and how did you end up where you are? Well, I 
was uh, fortunate or unfortunate, however you like to think of it, but I uh, had hippie parents, so they were <laughs> they were very encouraging about the artist path. My dad was kind of a frustrated artist, and my mom was a musician, and so there was some backing for, for that. They were pretty supportive. But, you know, it was always kind of in the background, well, if you're going to go do art, then just go do it. Don't go to school for it. Go do it, and then always have a backup. <laughs> I'll have something that we're actually going to make money at. So even though they were encouraging, it was very clear that they were going to kind of humor me <laughs> until I learned how the world really was. That was how I grew up. Were they artists themselves? Yeah. My dad was a painter. I actually have some of his pieces here at the house. And you know, my mom was in a jug band, of all things, when I was growing up. So they had a string bass, mandolins. And so, yeah, I grew up around music and art. No shock that I'm doing this now. That's totally great. And in your upbringing, they said, don't go to school. Just if you're going to do it, do it. So then did you not go to school? What happened around that? Yeah, I got some art scholarships. I kind of proved myself a bit so they could breathe a little bit easier, you know, because I was getting some financial help through, uh, you know, through different scholarships and things. But really, I was just trying to figure out a way to make a living doing art and being creative. So I settled on graphic design computer imaging. So there was a lot going on with animation and it was just kind of a budding new field. So I really wanted to go into that because I thought that was a way I could be creative and still still make a living. The only problem with graphic design is, although I was good at it, I was absolutely bored out of my mind (laughs) doing graphic design. (laughs) At the end of the day, you'd end up with this nicely designed piece of paper with a little mark on it that was, you know, distinctive, but yet it was just flat and 2D and it was just really boring to me. It didn't engage me. And plus, I was sitting in front of a computer all day long. It was just way too much, way too way too much kind of just sitting and pontificating. And I almost had this sense I was kind of hiding behind my clients. Mm. You know, like I had something to say, but really I was just trying to hide myself and say what they wanted said. So I was trying to figure out something that would work for my clients. And it just kind of always felt like I had something else that I wanted to say, but I was kind of hiding out. That's an interesting way to say that. I'm going to get in trouble for saying interesting. <laughs> Sweet. <laughs> well, it, it is interesting to me because I didn't, I didn't know that part of your journey. Did you find your own voice then in some way? And if so, how? Yeah, I was, you know, as bored stiff as a graphic designer, I had one of the coveted jobs in working for American Greetings in their lettering design department when I was just getting out of school the queen of England's like lettering designer, you know, was working across the cubicle and like that kind of caliber of people. And I was just, again, I was just miserable, but it was the job that everybody wanted. So I just really thought I should be happy with it. But I just knew that there was more kind of going on out there. I quit that job to everyone's dismay and kind of went around the, the country kind of looking for what else was, was out there. So you know, I spent a lot of time on the coast and, you know, eventually kind of ended up in uh, Colorado, just kind of searching for what that thing was going to be that was going to light me up. And it ended up being a woodworking class that a friend of mine said, hey, do you want to take this woodworking class for fun? And uh, I was like, sure, you know, what the heck, let's do it. And from day one, I was uh, absolutely hooked. I mean, we've got the big machines, you've got the noise, you got, you know, three-dimensionality, you got this great material to work with. There's just this, like, sights and sounds and smells, like it was all there. And it was just so clear to me what was missing was just, like, using my hands, moving around. It was just such an engaging endeavor and one that felt like it just had no end to the depth of kind of what you could discover around it. It was uh, really engaging. I think that's really descriptive of your work as I've seen it. You have a mix of different kinds of materials. Everything is very tactile. I don't know if your work is meant to be touched, but gosh, you know, you kind of want to. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Yes, absolutely. Some of it looks just 
you know, you've got wood that's just delicious looking or certain ways in which wood is treated, which may be rough or kind of sort of organic looking or spongy or, or whatever the case. And then you got metals and then you've got things that are either shiny and clean and crisp or something that looks a little rugged and got patina. And it's a lovely mix of the senses. It just sounds like that what you wanted to experience while creating the art is also what one experiences and and experiencing the art. Anything you want to say about that? It was kind of another part of growing up. I grew up in Ohio, so it was uh, and it was like in the heart of Amish country. And everything in Ohio was oak. <laughs> so if it was wood, <laughs> it was oak. If it was furniture, furniture is oak. If it was toys, it was oak. It was just like I just thought wood was pretty much synonymous with oak. Mm. And when I started woodworking, there was just this explosion of colors and textures and figure and there was so much expression there, such a depth of visual stimulus in wood. And it was just so dead when I was growing up. I was like, this shall not be. <laughs> you know, people must, people must know <laughs> about this. That was really the impetus. I made furniture originally, but really the impetus for the sculptural stuff was it was just your furniture gets covered over by magazines, right? And stuff and effluvia. And so it's just... To feature this on the wall, I thought it was just to give it its real, true dignity, to really feature it and feature the absolutely exquisite beauty of, of nature and just kind of what was possible there. Well, and it's very clear that you've succeeded in that way in looking at the artwork on your website. And uh, that was the first time I experienced, I was kind of taken aback. Sometimes someone that you know says, yeah, I'm an artist or yeah, I'm a musician. And then you hear their work or see their work. You have to go, oh, that's, that's really great. <laughs> it's a relief when you actually like it. <laughs> and not only do I like it, but I really love it. I think you do incredible work. And obviously, you know, your awards and, and everything else. Thank you. Demonstrate that as well. It's great work. All right. Well, let's let's talk about you as a businessman. And you um, obviously began studying with Influence Ecology some time ago. One of the quotes that I've heard you say and our film is something like when I first started here, I found out that it was mathematically impossible to reach my aims. And if I kept doing what I was doing, I just wasn't going to get there. Yes. So it sounds like that revelation came quite early on. Any other early revelations about what you were doing when you first started studying with Influence Ecology? I mean, along the same lines was just, you know, one of the things that uh, Influence College covers is there's very objective and subjective kinds of personalities. And my wife is, by default, my business partner. And it was just one of those things that was a constant thread in our marriage was how the business was going and was it going to be successful. And I just kept kind of being a subjective type person and had a lot of ideas. And she's very grounded and objective. I just always thought she was not supportive of my ideas. And so when those mathematical things came up, <laughs> just like, wow, I wonder if we're actually gonna be able to do this or what do we need to do in order to have this consistently work over time? I would have great ideas and, and she would just not be moved <laughs> by those great ideas. One of the things that I learned was through this ecology is to be able to articulate objectively how I'm going to do that. Like, all she wanted to know was, okay, how is this going to happen? Yeah. And truth be told, I didn't know. <laughs> that was the thing. I had the ideas, but they weren't proven. And she kept pointing to that. So she wasn't killing my great idea. And so not only did I start to respect 
her opinion or her point of view, but I also started to see it as the contribution that it was. If I could actually articulate things to her, like, well, here's how we're going to do it. I'm going to do this many shows, I'm going to do this many follow calls a week, real boots on the ground kind of stuff, then she was happy. Mm. And that was really what I was, you know, so much of what my life was about, right? Starting to make my wife happy. So that this was able to communicate something real to her. And then I was able to go and execute on that. It really helped uh, not only my experience of the business, but also the experience of us as partners and kind of default business people. All right. Well, that is just way too good. Uh, I'm going to spend a moment there because you've just described something that is an aspect of, of every transaction that goes well and what's often missing when it doesn't. So let's first ask, what personality do you identify with and what is it that you think she is? I identify with the personality uh, inventor mm -hmm. and I believe that she is a judge. All right, good. So as we teach you, the inventor is the idea person and the judge is the assessment person or the person one of the ways I like to say it is the judge is always saying, well, let me tell you what you should have done. Uh, yeah. And, and the inventor has grand and lofty ideas. So oftentimes what we find in a transaction is that an inventor will often have an idea and then go to work. And as we teach it, that means they skip certain steps <laughs> And everything else. <laughs> and everything else, right? And they skip all the other steps. And, and what they end up doing in skipping other steps is they don't do something that is so critical. And that is, is that they, they don't often stop and then get other people in the same world that they are in. In other words, they don't take the time to have a meeting of the minds with the people around them to get them on the same page, to get them going in the same direction, to get their buy-in. They just assume their ideas are great and everyone should get on board. And then they're upset when people don't. <clears throat> in fact, if you're typically like most inventors, Sean, you may have spent a life wondering why you have to hide your good ideas from people because they're just about to take them down. <laughs> yes. <laughs> right? Yes. So it sounds like then you provided the missing piece, which is you're, you're having a meeting of the minds with her, but you're not only having a meeting of the minds with her, generally speaking, you're having a, a meeting of the minds with her in the way that matters to her, which is the how and all of that. It's, it's a great example. I love that you talked about that because if you're in business with someone or you're working with someone on a project or you're working with someone in a transaction, it just, it's, it's all the same. Have a meeting of the minds before you go into work, before you begin to, to take the actions to produce what you've both committed to. So anything else about all that that's just great? Yeah, it's just one of the fabulous things about this education is it's something that I wouldn't even have looked at as being connected. I mean, it's kind of obvious that we're business partners and stuff, but our relationship is is distinct from the business, which is distinct from career, which is distinct. It's like I had all these little compartments for, for different things. And one of the things here is there's just a hole. There, there's a hole of my life, and I can't really mess with one thing over here without changing something else over here. So how do you take into account this whole big picture life, including health and work and relationships, like all of it, such that it's all working together? 
because I would trash my relationship with my wife in favor of getting a bunch of money coming in. Or I would trash my health because I'm driving across the country really fast to get to a show. Or I really had it like these little compartments. And when I actually had to look at all these things together and be responsible for all of them together, then it's like, oh, well, of course, you know, it's almost like, well, duh, of course they're linked. But how I was actually going to deal with all that stuff was just always a mystery to me. But in here, you just get a, you get a great kind of course of study that allows you to really understand how all these things not only are linked, but how you can impact them. And the thing with my wife is just something I just thought was just going to be that way forever. Like she was going to kill my ideas, let me know how I did, and I was going to be the one that's always out there in front taking the bullets. <laughs> and that's just not the way, that's not an accurate picture of the way it was. And I just didn't know that. And just thinking about people who spent a lifetime thinking their parents are trying to shoot them down or their business partners are trying to shoot them down or someone's trying to shoot them down when all that's missing is it's more of an absence of the time taken to offer a meeting of the minds to, as we might say, to present to another person in a way that they get it, what it is that you're inviting them to consider as a transaction. That's so great. Well, it just, it carries over directly then to, you know, my offer in the marketplace, right? If I'm talking to someone about sculpture and they're uh, a certain personality type uh, and I don't know that, then I'm actually not talking to them in a way that really makes a difference for them. So I, I don't even know if that's a prospective client or not because I can't qualify them. They can't qualify me because we're not even on the same page. So I, you know, I just shudder to think how much business I've lost in the past just because I haven't known really how to talk to people about what it is that I was doing. I mean, I knew how to talk to other people that were like me, but that's a very small percentage of the population. I, I really needed to understand how to talk to the different personality profiles and the different styles of communicating to really get across what I was doing, which is just so key to being an artist and, and when selling art, just because even if they're not interested, people leave like, wow, I was really heard and I really know what this guy has to offer and I just don't want that right now. Or, or yeah, like, let's go. And just being really able to effectively communicate. And so, so it sounds like then before you started studying with us, the relationship with your wife might have been strained and some sometimes tenuous probably resentments building up on both sides for your inability to understand the the world view of the other one and how is it now how how do you guys communicate now how is your relationship now that was just so well summed up that was really well said <laughs> yeah that was that was it and i was just living like that was going to continue and now I, I keep really detailed records and i can tell you where every cent is going and she can see at any moment where every cent is going. We have monthly meetings for, you know, just kind of like, you know, what our goals are together, you know, how we're going to get there. It's just, man, being able to talk to somebody in their own language and really let them know that you've got their back and that they're safe. Like her biggest thing is just, am I safe? Is this going to work out? Is this secure? And I'm just like, what? Who cares about security? Let's roll, you know, and to be able to take the time to make sure she's taken care of and then let's roll. It makes such a difference because then I know she's there. I'm not, you know, doing it by myself either. Like she's on board, like no kidding. Before she was just like on board because, well, you know, you're my husband. What am I going to do? 
But no, she was really on board. Like, okay, this is making a difference. This is making a real difference in the way that you transact, how you operate around shows, how you operate around customers, how you operate just on the day-to-day emails and whatnot. I mean, she sees the difference and it allows her to relax, which allows me to relax, which we can both do our best thinking and really make stuff happen. That's so great. Uh, I love that that's happened. It makes me happy. Big smile on my face. All right. Well, <laughs> yeah. I, I want to ask you one other question about this, then I want to go go in a different direction. Sure. I, one of the, the opportunities I love about speaking with you is you're a, a one-man shop, right? And we have a lot of people who their business starts as a one-man shop or it, it stays a one-man shop uh, for whatever reason that might be. And that's really, that's actually perfect and in, in all of that. And one of the things your story illustrates is um, having another around you uh, or others around you and that you and your wife seem to complement one another quite well in terms of, of your subjective nature and her objective nature. What kind of support has, how have you allowed her objectivity to support you? <laughs> That's great. Well, first thing I had to, to admit to myself was that my ideas were untested. So her doubt about them was not unfounded. But in order to test that, she has some really good ideas about how to how to judge how those, these numbers are. Or, you know, have you started that retirement account yet? Or it's like a lot of the things that seemed like they were pestering me before now are, hey, this is the things that we need to make sure we keep an eye on to make sure that the business continues the way we want it to and that we're going to reach our aims and our goals together. So it's just she is an incredible grounding force. Like if I can run something by her and she doesn't poke a hole in it, I cannot tell you the joy that I have in my heart (laughs) for, (laughs) you know, because it means I've thought about it. It not only passed all my checks and balances, but it passed her checks and balances. I know I'm on to gold. That was one of the things when I started making enough money to quit my day job, do the artwork full time. And she was aligned. I was just, it was one of the best days of my life, right? You know, there's still a lot of transition to do, but it was proof to her and inside of all her security needs and everything that, yes, this this is a viable way to go. Uh, It continues to that way to this day. It's like when she's okay with something, then I know it's gold. And if she's not okay with something, I got more work to do. If you'd like to decode the mysteries of an ambitious life, you can register for the Influence Ecology webinar called Ambitious Living, The Eight Defining Principles. This free one-hour webinar offers eight principles practiced by the most successful and effective men and women we know. To give you a taste, here's one of the principles. It's called Accurate Thinking. The essential idea is this. You and I are always transacting to produce a better income, influential identity, and satisfying work. These situations, money, career, and work, are but three of 14 unavoidable conditions of life. If you don't think accurately about these conditions and how you'll satisfy each of them, you will likely produce hardship for yourself and your family. So, how do you think accurately about these and other conditions of life? Attend the webinar to find out more. Once registered, 
You'll receive the 2016 edition of Ambitious Living, a 12-page guide offering a blueprint for the eight defining principles, each of which asks important questions to help direct your aims. To learn more, you can find the link in the show notes for this podcast at influenceecology.com forward slash podcast, or from your mobile phone, you can click the image art for this episode to find a link to register. Okay, back to the show. All right, let's talk about your your business. And yeah, over the last few years, how have you taken yourself from a guy that's, as you said, haven't yet quit your day job? to where you are now, what did you learn and how did that happen? The, the quitting of the, the day job happened before Fluence Ecology started, but it was the quitting of the day job has been an ongoing test for me. So that's one of the reasons I was seeking out something because I knew there were things that I didn't, that I didn't know that I needed to know, but I didn't even know what those were. <laughs> you know, it was just like one of those things just there's so much out there there's so much hitting you all the time there's so many new books there's no new fad like the, you know be like apple whatever the new thing is right and i was just i really had no idea what to do luckily i was invited by one of the one of the members to to check this thing out and it was exactly the fit that i was looking for because you guys had done all the vetting of the books you guys had done the assembling of the the knowledge you guys had done the, the set up the practices the consequential environment everything that i needed in order to you know really make this a viable go there's plenty of doubts that i had when i quit went full time doing this and i would just throw everything against the wall and, and see what stuck but that's a really bad long-term plan <laughs> that's like it's it's it has no long-term viability so so actually having the tools to be able to determine, okay, this is working. Okay, this is where the profits are going to be the, the easiest to obtain. This is some low-cost clients here. This is the place to go. Like all those tests for all my great knowledge, I, I, had, no, I had no structure for that. I had no way to find out why what I was doing was working or not working. And for you personally then, what did you discover about your own naivete or perhaps, what did you discover about your own naivete as a business person? The biggest, the biggest thing was I had prospective clients as clients. In my head, they were like a safety net or, you know, they had never, they hadn't made any commitments to me and stuff, but they were follow-ups that I could do. So the things that I could do were like, oh, well, I've always got that, mm. right? So it was like a, a, a way to not be in action or a way not to find out if they were actually good, you know, solid follow-up, <laughs> follow-ups and were actually interested or whether they were just kind of good in my, in my mind. So I got really accurate about getting into reality about, okay, who's actually ready to go? Who is just saying that they're ready to go? Who's not ready yet? I had just really given myself this fantasy land of business that was not grounded in any kind of reality or it just wasn't grounded in reality. Yeah. But it made me feel comfortable. It made me feel safe. So it was just like this, this desperation hiding as a business plan. <laughs> and when, when I really saw the, like, the stinging nature of that, <laughs> that this was just not a viable way to go, it was just like, oh, I can actually see where these people are and move them through very quickly. And if they're not interested, 
I actually have time to get on to other people. Yeah. <laughs> it was just such a revelation for me. Moving people through this transaction cycle really quickly either completed the transaction and earned me money or got, you know, thank you very much and, and I'll follow up with you in a couple months. But I knew exactly where I stood and then I had plenty of energy and focus left to be able to find new people or to try this show or to study whether this show was even going to be viable or not. It was just like I had a lot more freedom moving people through quickly than I than the, the fake freedom or the pretend freedom I had just kind of feeling like, well, I got 10 people that I could call today, but I'm going to go have some Doritos and sit on the couch <laughs> kind of thing. <laughs> it sounds like uh, there's a lot of ways that you stopped lying to yourself. I'll say it that way because I think it's quite clean. A lot of ways that you stopped lying to yourself about what might happen or could happen. Yes. And did some accurate thinking, began to move to transact for things happening the way you wanted them to happen. Yes. I mean, that was really well said. It's like what could happen or might happen was what was going to happen to me. I, I had no distinction between those things. Uh, it was just like it might happen was it was going to happen. And then I'd be really puzzled when it didn't work out. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Very good. So then in the, in the Fundamentals of Transaction program and the work that we do here, you start to think accurately about those things. You start to transact in accordance with your aims, which are now clear and certain and so forth. What did you begin to discover next about yourself as a, a business person, as an artist? I've always really prided myself on being able to articulate what I was trying to do with my art and then put that into a piece of wood and, and metal, uh, which in its, when itself doesn't have necessarily the soul that I try to put into it, and then to have other people see it. Like I knew those were the main three things. Right, so articulate what I wanted, put it into the work, and then have other people see it in the work without me having to tell them. The only problem in that is it's great from an art perspective, but it's horrible for a sales plan, <laughs> right? Waiting for people to realize the beauty in something and, and give me money was not, again, not a viable plan. <laughs> All artists think, well, they're just going to be so struck by the beauty of it. They're going to come in, they're going to leave a pile of money, and they're going to walk out and everybody will be happy, right? But the problem with that is there's way too many things pulling on, on people's sleeves uh, at any given moment. And to me, it was a real revelation to realize I was competing with Apple. I was competing with family. I was complete competing with cars and watches and groceries. And I mean, it's like literally everything is pulling on people all the time. Uh, and there's a limited resource there. So why me? Why should they bother to look at this piece? Why should they bother to take it home? Why should they bother to hang it? And so I, I really started to have to deal with how am I going to interrupt people's kind of ordinary lives enough that they actually realize what I'm doing. My art's not for everybody, but the people that it is for, I need to make sure that they know what it is that I'm doing so they can actually really make a choice on whether it's going to serve them and their environment or whatever it is that they want to do. So I really had to start articulating what it was that I was doing in a way that was more in people's face, I think is the, the way to say it. I think uh, Kirkland said once the timid salesmen have skinny kids. <laughs> that one really, that really stuck with me. Timid salesmen have skinny kids, and I was just, uh, and I was very timid salesman because I felt like it's bragging, right? 
it's bragging. It's being too out there. It's being, it's like nobody wants to hear somebody talking about their art. That's all they want to hear. They want to know what they're looking at. They want to know why they care. They want to know why I'm in this really high-end show. Like, what is it that, you know, this guy is doing with this stuff? I mean, some people get it right away, but, you know, other people, they really do need to be educated in that moment. So, so I really had to see that the environment is one of those things that I really impact. And that's the place where I had to go to work on telling people what kind of difference that this was going to make in their environment. Really good. So you're pointing to how you might agitate or excite someone's indifference. And you wrote in your notes to me, you said most people are indifferent to what you do. Yeah. And you said that's different than not caring. Yes. Right. You don't mean indifference as in they don't care. And we could talk about whether or not they care or not. But you, it sounds like you accepted that people are indifferent. And I think this is where I'd like to take this conversation next because it, it is an important one for all entrepreneurs, I'd say, for business people. But I think it's, it's something for us to consider generally if we are going to succeed at transacting powerfully, if we're going to develop our transactional competence, we're going to have to accept indifference. I'd like to know in your, in your first introduction to indifference as a concept, what did you go through? Did you accept indifference right away? Did you resist that people were indifferent? Did you think uh, otherwise? What did you go through? Well, it's so great because initially, like going to a, a show, putting your stuff up on the wall, which is the best you got within you, right? The, the best stuff you could come up with is up there on the wall. It's synonymous with you your point of view, your lifestyle, and to watch people just kind of shuffle by, <laughs> just hundreds <laughs> and hundreds and hundreds of people just shuffle by. <laughs> it's, it's, and your soul uh, is hanging out for all to see <laughs> yes. and honor. And just the wilting, the wilting power of, of that over time. And then you multiply that by like a three, four day show. Yeah. It's tough. And it's not for the faint of heart. <laughs> it just really isn't. In the beginning, I was really, I was really powerless. I just didn't. I just couldn't see any way to other than to start breaking into song or dancing through the street. Or maybe that's a good idea. I don't know. But it's like I really didn't see how I was going to be able to interrupt that. It's like if somebody came in and asked me a question, I'd be happy to answer. But just like how to impact that was beyond me. And thank goodness for uh, influence ecology. Because now I have so many different ways to try to interact with people and, and see if they're actually interested in what I'm talking about <laughs> and what I have to offer. So I, I love the, your, your visual example of thousands of people just walking by and not even giving a glance. It's sort of a horrific example of it is not for the faint of heart. No. So if we're going to talk about indifference and, and some of the things that we teach about that, one thing we notice is that Oftentimes, people take indifference personally, as if indifference is an attack, or if I'm indifferent, it means I don't care, or, or if I'm indifferent, it means that I'm cold, or, or something else. Anything else that you can say about your own study of indifference, or your own acceptance of indifference as a phenomenon? Yeah, I'd say there's there's definitely a, a piece I have around indifference now that it's it's just what I expect, so it's not surprising anymore. It's not it's not disarming. 
But now it's just like, oh, of course. How else do we go out and survive in, in the current, you know, the current environment with everything kind of coming at us, right? If we paid attention to every single offer all the time, I mean, we'd be in the hospital. <laughs> and we'd weigh 3,000 pounds and yeah. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So it really is kind of up to me. And, and I look at it more now like it's, they're just, they're sleepy. <laughs> they're asleep, right? So it's just, how do I get them engaged to just even see if it's appropriate to, to do business together? And how do you, how have you been doing that? Well, I mean, for instance, if I'm talking to business leaders or business owners and you wouldn't leave a blank page on your website, right? But you got a blank wall sitting right there in your front office, I mean, this is a chance to demonstrate your identity without having to say a word. Put away the motivational posters. <laughs> You're missing what really inspires people. I would never have said that before. Never. <laughs> you know, like that would, I'd wait and answer questions politely or whatever. But it's like I, I study the environment. You know, we're an animal in the environment. If you change the environment, you change the animal. So... What's in your home? What's hanging in your home? Are they things, objects of distinction that move you, that bring the best out of you? It's like one of the first Macs, you know, when the Macs came out and stuff. I wanted to do stuff that was worthy of the Mac. <laughs> you know, it pulled me forward. Yeah. Right? So it's just like, what pulls you forward in your life? Are you surrounded by those objects? Or are you just kind of surviving something in your environment? All right. Well, this is too good because obviously, well, it's obvious to me that you've taken the time to stop and think about how you might agitate the indifference, uh, how you might produce a breakdown, as we talk about it, how you might produce a breakdown that has someone say, huh, I'm, I should find out about that. And then you took the time to craft ways that you might speak to that. Anything you want to say about that experience, that process, what you went through? Yeah, it was a struggle. It's like I'm somewhat out, outward with people, and but that's taken a lot of practice. I tend to be a lone wolf and a very private person, so but I practiced a lot and you know started to get good at least talking to people. But there was still a, there was still a kind of a big threat. There was still a big threat there, and now kind of armed with more of a script or more of uh, a group of things or a group of points that I can use to to hit on when I'm you know talking with people. I really freed up. And it's actually fun to play with people. It's fun to kind of poke them. And one of the things that uh, I got some great coaching on, ask people if they've got expensive termites they're trying to feed. <laughs> I do all this woodwork and stuff. Play with, you're just really playing with people and making them laugh. It's like, you know, these are beautiful. How many can I wrap up for you? Do you know, I got plenty of bubble wrap. Just ways to kind of like, well, I guess I really could take that home. Like people are left with, well, I wow, I really could take that home. Because I don't think most people even know that the stuff that they're seeing is for sale and that they could actually have it. That's how asleep people are. Like they just don't even know. It's like a museum or something. And like, no, this is, you could have this. If this is exciting and inspiring to you, take it home. Do you love life? Celebrate it. Is it safe to say that you you are experimenting a bit with the canvas of our social environment oh absolutely and i mean but the thing is that it's fun i it just if you would have told me it would be fun to kind of play with people and sell art and i could bring the same creativity that i use for the artwork to a conversation about purchasing the artwork i, I would just said you're crazy that's two separate things 
Like I have to go and get an MBA in business or something first, and then I can, you know, have a conversation about business. It's like, no, I can actually bring that, that juice, that stuff that I love to do anyway, to a conversation, to a spreadsheet, for goodness sake, to a corporate client, that fun, they, they want it. They want somebody to wake them up. They want what you got. You just got to let them know what it is. Very, very great. All right. Is there anything else that you would like to say? Any soapbox and anything else? Don't necessarily buy into the starving artist conversation. <laughs> um, and if you're an artist or a creative person out there, it's just get the, get the specific help that you need because it's totally viable to, to sell your works, to be creative, to live a, a lifestyle that you want to live, uh, not having to compromise that lifestyle. It's totally, totally possible. And it's just you need the you need the help. And Influence Ecology is the place where I found exactly the help I needed at exactly the right time. Yeah, so it, it's totally possible. Uh, and just don't stop. All right. With that, Sean, thank you so very, very much for what you've provided today. I enjoyed this very much. Thank you, John. And thanks for the education. You are welcome. As I promised in today's Guru Talk, we listen in on a membership webinar to hear Kirkland Tibbles explain the nature of indifference and how we might navigate an indifferent marketplace. Human beings are always valuing and ranking something constantly. And when you're indifferent to it, it just simply means that you see no value. We don't take a step, says Simmel, without evaluating and ranking every move of that step, every single thing about it. We don't take a step without first evaluating, ordering, and ranking that step in terms of its importance. That means that we rank things as to their importance or their value. Therefore, we attend to those things that have value, and we are indifferent to those that do not. Therefore, we produce a negative value with indifference. When you demonstrate indifference, what you are saying is it holds no value. We talk about if you really want to demonstrate your authority and power in the transactions that are important to you, ask yourself this question. If you remove your help, if you take yourself out of that transaction, does it do any harm? Does it make any difference? Or would everyone who's engaged in that transaction be left indifferent one way or the other? And there's your answer. Would it make any difference in the organizations where you participate if you were there or not? Really, like really make any difference? If it does, you can start to measure your value because people have ranked it. They've evaluated and they see value in it. But if they're indifferent to you, all it means is not that they don't care about you. It just holds no value. We've had people who've, who have come to terms with their own indifference and had biological reactions to it, called up and said, I had to pull over when it hit me after an open training session how indifferent I am to my own concerns, much less the concerns of others. Yeah, let's talk about that for a second because I think that's one of the things that I want to make sure that we confront here. It's been my experience that people often don't actually accept the indifference in the marketplace. They don't, they don't accept it. They, they tend to say, well, no, people do care. People really do. Or, well, my mother cares. She's not indifferent to me. Or people at work, they care about me. And they don't relate to 
the others of the world as indifferent. They don't relate to, in some cases, the weather as indifferent or nature as indifferent. <laughs> I, I don't remember the last time that I argued with gravity. I, I, I'm fine with that. I accept. <laughs> but, but indifference? Now, hold on. Well, there's, there's something, I think, to point to contextually here. And this, this might ease the pain for folks who have trouble with this conversation. If you just relate to those places in your life that are the most important, that have great value, that carry some significance and importance with you, and you are attempting <laughs> to engage your environment and no one gives a rat's ass, that comes face to face, you come face to face with indifference. And it's not that they don't care. It's different from caring. It holds no value. And it is incumbent upon you to wake up to the fact that if you are going to get their attention, you are going to have to produce that narrative of value. You're going to have to agitate the environment. Sometimes it means agitating it a lot. It means sometimes you're going to have to go out of your way. And when you're just unwilling to go out of your way, you are starting to come to terms with your own indifference. Can you say more about not caring versus indifference? Yeah. I know people who really care about animals, but they take no action. I know people who care about organizations or about particular conditions of life, but there's no recognition of that in any objective way. They're just simply unwilling to act. And they will continue to be unwilling to act until the environment or some other situation produces the opportunity or threat for them to do so. If I go down a list of concerns in life, do you care about global warming? Do you care about space trash? <laughs> to go down a long list of things that people who I know personally can give you all kinds of evidence that you ought to be concerned about this. You go see a documentary or you talk to someone who, who is about a cause. You care about your financial future, but you're indifferent to it if you're unwilling to transact to satisfy it or to engage it. It's simply, you're just simply indifferent to it. I experiment with this all the time. When I finished my presidency of a Toastmasters organization during my term, I sent everyone in the club a handwritten thank you note with something in the note specific to what I was grateful for. And in the 80 plus year history of this organization, two guys have been in that club over 40 years, but there's no evidence that anybody ever did that before. And these two guys have been there forever were impacted, not the, the fact that I took the time to do it, but that it, it struck a nerve of difference that it made to take that action. It wasn't just me saying thank you like most adults would. It's going beyond what an adult would do, and it's moving ambitiously. Now, why did I do that? First and foremost, I am truly grateful, and I can stand at the lectern, and I can thank them earnestly. But when they got a handwritten thank you note, they got it. I am not indifferent to the help and their value, and they felt valued. 
they had a an objective reason to concern themselves with that act. And the number of people who have brought that up since then, it was months ago, the stories that are told expand on the environment of that club. People are doing that more. You started something with that thing you did, they'll say. I mean, listen, I, I did that on purpose for a number of reasons to satisfy conditions of life. First and foremost, it works. And that's, that's a practice of letting people know I am not indifferent to the concerns of this club and your value in it. Go ahead, John. Well, I think one of the reasons that we are, we're pointing to indifference as a form of naivete is because we sometimes don't acknowledge that we have grown indifferent. We sometimes don't acknowledge that we are indifferent to begin with. We sometimes don't acknowledge that others are indifferent. So we tend to live in a world where, in my view, people assume that indifference isn't occurring or perhaps they dismiss it in some way. And in your example of your, your Toastmasters club and offering an acknowledgement, uh, sending a card and, and the like, that was your not moving with indifference to the concern and care and the acknowledgement and, and gratitude that you wanted to express. You knew that what was likely and probable was that people would leave and there'd be an indifferent you know, there would be indifference to the, the acknowledgement of that that gratitude. And so you, you took the time to express it. You took the time to move as, as an ambitious adult. So it, it is a kind of naivete. We do grow indifferent. It is natural. You know, one of the things that, that you and I have to deal with as biological critters is that over time, we stop seeing the art on our walls. We can walk down the street. We don't expect tigers to jump out. We don't expect people to leap out of bushes and attack us. We tend to live in a pretty unagitated state most of the time. And we tend to like it that way. We tend to buy lots of products to make sure that we stay in a state of peaceful bliss. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't often attend to producing a kind of agitation or excitement in the environments in which we live. We're used to growing indifferent. But I think what we want to point out here is, is that you could say that it's naive to approach the world, to approach the marketplace, and to approach one another with the kind of indifference that's automatic, that's just sort of there anyway. And in Kirkland, your example, again, you, you didn't. You took action to to move in a different direction altogether. Well, there's also ways to demonstrate one's commitments by calling out indifference on a regular basis. The, the thing that we must learn how to do if we're going to transact beyond our, beyond the norm, I'll call it, beyond the, the basic and fundamental comforts of life, if you have a lofty aim in any condition of life, whether it's your own money or it's your legacy, if it's some concern that you have, it will require you paying attention in a way that is uncommon. You're coming to terms with your own ignorance, your naivete, your own indifference, your naivete. 
your lack of specialized knowledge, naivete, the language required to produce a particular narrative, your naivete, the fact that you may be running around with a, an outward expression that you, you have some concept of indifference and, and you, you, know, you may accept generally, but that's not how you behave. You behave as though people still owe you something, not in a highly expressive way, but you just expect that human beings are going to somehow come around. <laughs> Naivete. Yeah, news for you. It, it would be really good as an exercise for you to see just how far you can go in observing and accepting the level of naivete and indifference that exists in the world today. People are not going to vote for your causes because they ought to see that for themselves. They're going to vote based on their own concern. If you can't demonstrate to another human being that they ought to take an act, do a thing, accept an offer, duck, run, because there is threat involved if they don't, because you are unwilling to learn how to utilize the narratives and the weapons of influence, well, good luck. If you'd like to know more about influence ecology and our approach, check out our webinar, Ambitious Living, The Eight Defining Principles. The webinar is available globally. We'll teach you the core principles practiced by the most successful and effective men and women we know. This webinar is for those who aspire to an influential life that provides measurable satisfaction for themselves, their family, and their organizations. This webinar is specifically designed for those who don't want to sacrifice a well-balanced life for superior financial rewards. They want it all. To find out more, you can find the link in the show notes for this podcast at influenceecology.com forward slash podcast. That's influenceecology.com forward slash podcast. Or in the U.S. or Canada, you can text the word AMBITION to 805-262-9008 and we'll send the registration link right to your mobile phone. Again, text the word AMBITION to 805-262-9008. Also in our show notes, you'll find all the links to websites, books, or special downloads mentioned in this podcast. In our next episode, we feature an interview with Anna Athanasiu, an internet pioneer from the San Francisco Bay Area of California, who has much to say about the asset and liability of our behaviors and personality. And one thing I learned about in engineering was they taught us about personality types. And so we studied Myers-Briggs and things like that. And, and all I could really use them for was a stronger reason why someone was doing it wrong. <laughs> well, you're this personality type, and that means that you're going to be overly focused, you performers in particular, right? Like you guys are too busy trying to sell this product to people before we've even built it. And they're busy trying to build this clientele before we even have a set of features that are nailed down for them. And it was like, I could just make them wrong, like those marketing people. Mm -hmm. And they're always selling what we haven't even built. Where I'm at now, after having studied with Influence Ecology, is being able to see that the treasure, right, that the performers are, that they actually will, first of all, they'll always make me look good. Mm. So I don't want to be in a conversation where we're talking about a deal without actually my favorite performers there. If you enjoyed this episode and would like to share it with others, you can find it and share it from our website at influenceecology.com. You can also find us on iTunes to subscribe. 
We'd love to know what you think, so please take a moment and offer us a review. Thank you for another great episode of the Influence Ecology podcast. I'm your host, John Patterson. I'd like to thank our guest for a great interview. In our show notes, you'll find links to connect with them and all the links to websites, books, or special downloads mentioned in this podcast. This podcast is made possible by the brilliant work of the Influence Ecology staff, mentors, and members around the world. We're grateful for co-founder Kirkland Tibbles and his 30-plus years of specialized study and practice that make all this possible. And finally, thanks to our producer, Jason Kelly. Editing and music by Bell Ringer Productions, music supervisors, Dashley LeCorpse, and Marcus Bell.